Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. We ended last episode mentioning the famous image of Feininger's woodcut, The Cathedral, which served as frontispiece to the Bauhaus's 1919 manifesto. While it isn't currently fashionable to bring up Western religion while discussing art and architecture, we have not noticed too many historians giving consideration to the sincere religious sentiment at the institution's founding. The Bauhaus Manifesto ends with a strivingly prophetic call for the new school to be the symbol of a new coming faith, as if it were pivoting on a hinge of history. The single visual statement the document leaves with us is, unabashedly, a church. These deliberate decisions of how to present the new Bauhaus were hardly incidental and reached deeper than the common and oblique allusions to medieval workmen's guilds. As a religion is, among other things, but fundamentally, an organization of shared beliefs, any institution that consciously deals with such a collection of creeds will bear a significant resemblance to a religion, and may sometimes invoke religiosity to make a certain point. And that is just what Grotius did with how he phrased his manifesto. Every completed design requires, by definition, an actualized implementation of organized ideas. The most ardent deconstructionist will be working overtime to organize an affect of disorganization. And any of these design ideas, when carried through, must bear belief that merits sufficient trust to implement them. This facade will not buckle, copper pipes are better than PVC, the marketing strategy will work, housing projects are good for the poor, green roofs will help the environment, and on ad astra. Even in the most mundane way, each decision by a designer, and every act of a craftsman at any point in the design process consists of a small or great leap of faith. One must believe that the idea being handled is, on some level and in some way, worthy of implementation, or at least worth getting paid for, as belief in the monetary system is the most broadly shared faith of them all. Without these interlocking beliefs and trust, nothing would ever get built. And even so, the Bauhaus took things a step further in professing not a contemporary, but a future faith. At the outset, and before we even cut into the religious angle that will provide our background for discussion, we want to make the distinction between religion and religiosity clear. We would argue that in keeping with the romantic purview that the Bauhaus took toward innovation, to the minds of its members, a Bauhaus religion 
would have been as impossible a thing as a Bauhaus visual style. But the edges of that analogy bleed out. Just as there is something unmistakably Bauhausian to a present-day observer in the look and feel of the works they produced, the ideas that drove them to these ends, while not constituting any specific religion, often carried a religious tone and the pervasive influence of spiritual philosophies. As we shall see some episodes from now, Professor Itten, who had been spearheading the early years of the introductory course, was pushed out of the school by Gropius for demanding an atmosphere of neo-Zaratustrian devotion that bore too close a resemblance to a cult. Tom Wolfe's light-hearted biography of modernism, 1981's From Bauhaus to Our House, lampoons what he took to be the clerical bent and compound mentality of 20th century architecture. All this well taken, the Bauhaus and the modern movement generally were neither religions nor cults, but the resemblances between the two are salient, especially if we notice how Gropius and Feininger themselves were making forwardly foundational religious references. There are long traditions of craft practitioners referring to, and in some aspects relying on, religious elements as they journey from apprenticeship to mastery of their particular skill. Today, we explore in greater depth the philosophical background and material implications of the religiosity associated with Feininger's life and expressionist work. As we saw in our past episode, Lionel Feininger's early life was shaped by the musical vocation of his parents and his own childhood's musical training. Within the framework of late 19th century European culture, the so-called Ernste Musik and Funktionale Musik, or serious and functional music, that put food on the Feininger's table would never have developed to the point of supporting a family, indeed would never have existed, were it not for religious ideas shaping compositions that were brought to life reverberating in the nave of a cathedral. Barbara Haskell's monograph on Feininger, At the Edge of the World, portrays religion as a formative force in the young man's life, and one that would prove influential to his chief vocation. The Feiningers followed in the tradition of German Romantic Catholicism, a branch of Catholic belief that was generally opposed to church hierarchy and specifically in disagreement with papal infallibility. A closer explication of German Romantic Catholicism can be found in James C. Livingston and Francis Schussler Fiorenza's Modern Christian Thought, the Enlightenment and Nineteenth Century, Volume 1. The German Aufklärung, the Age of Enlightenment, and the era of Romanticism that followed were qualitatively distinct from the closely related French movements in several ways. 
while the French Enlightenment tended to be outwardly agnostic and frequently deistically or atheistically inclined, the German Enlightenment, being culturally closer to the anti-clerical strains of Protestantism, felt less of a need to be distant from Christian ideas and practices. That within Germany there was relatively less intellectual interest in distancing oneself from Christianity, Goethe's proud confession of pantheism notwithstanding, would prove influential in the arts of later decades. What Livingston and Fiorenza call the Romantic Renaissance of German Catholicism was closely associated with the universities at Munich, Tübingen, Berlin, Münster, and the one with political and intellectual ties to Weimar, Jena. At Catholic and Protestant schools in the Germanies, early 19th century religious scholars were influenced by then-recent philosophers such as Kant, Fichte, Schelling, and Hegel. But while both French and German theologians were greatly concerned with questions of authority, meaning how something is determined to be true or false, they approached the problem very differently. In France, the political imperatives of the revolution and Napoleon's consolidation of power tilted questions of authority towards a more sociological and political light. German Catholics were more concerned with theological challenges from neighboring Protestants than with political challenges from a largely symbolic central government. Their arguments turf thus shifted from church versus the republic to church versus another church. Consequently, a philosophical position packed with anti-clerical force would be much less effective with the Germans than the French. There really was no state to stick it to. Livingston and Fiorenza also argue that German Catholicism, especially in Tübingen, felt obliged to present the faith in a way that the Lutherans could respect. Among other things, this meant pushing against papal infallibility. The Protestant argument to be overcome was that Catholic authority made genuine research and even personal discovery rather meaningless because the individual was ordered to come to a predetermined conclusion. If freedom of inquiry was to be accepted and defended, a notion which, by the early 19th century had gained nearly unanimous support across Christian doctrines, the Catholics would have to concede to the Protestants' conclusions about the historical accretion and development of Catholic dogma. The Protestant perspective was that the Church belief and practice, just as with a set of laws, was initially enacted with certain ideals and purposes in mind. These laws were inevitably corroded and their principles obscured by centuries of conflicting precedent and the periodic intervention of judicial 
or papal authority required to settle conflicts, leading to laws that often ended up contingently opposed to the original ideas and intents behind them. The endorsement and use of indulgences, or the papal states declaring war, are the classic examples that Protestants pointed to. For both church and law, the anti-dogma argument here is that history will inevitably push any authority-driven system of belief into a steady drift away from earlier, supposedly purer principles of justice. The return ad fontes, or to the sources, in the words of Erasmus of Rotterdam, shares a great affinity to the ideology of modernist movements. Through this perspective, we can find within German Romantic Catholicism's early 19th century response to Lutheran critiques the germ for the late 19th century's radical artistic and technological break with the past, which ushered in the era of isms we have been discussing. While none of these movements needed to be outwardly religious, the desire to cut the dogmatic shackles from history and to rely on personal inspiration or direct social evidence was grounded in a well-established tradition of European religious thought. In the Bauhaus Manifesto, Grotius and Feininger were following a specific precedent by proclaiming the confession of a new faith that believed art and architecture could step outside of and beyond the definitions and expectations of previous generations. For Expressionism, the Protestant and Romantic Catholic idea that the individual should be in direct contact with infinite spirit was particularly powerful. The amplification and realization of personalized essence through the trigger and filter method of perception and production we already mentioned in our previous episode was a touchstone of expressionist artistic innovation. Since the personal aspect of this process was already making for such radically impressive results, even prior to the onset of expressionism as such, it stood to reason that one would, as a next step, strive to connect to and express the oceanic divine. Not only would this strategy strive to elevate the work to an uber-personal level, but if one did actually break through to something mysterious and wholly other, and let the work of art bear the mark of this sublime encounter, then the reaction of other humans to this work of art would be, if not an ontological proof, then certainly a functional demonstration of the presence of God. But what does any of that matter in the mud, noise, and chaos of the street? Such was the line of attack that Dada 
and the Neue Sachlichkeit perspectives would use to challenge Expressionism in the movement's fading years. Feininger's life had been deeply infused with these theological issues. Spiritual matters were a vividly active concern. His mother wrote to him in 1913, Learn to know that you live and move and have your being in infinite life, truth, and love, and that life is not dependent on physical conditions. We reflect the divine mind. It is omnipresent all about us, in us spiritually, and we in it spiritually. You must understand your being in connection with the great all-in-all. And she was hardly preaching to the unconverted. During his studies in Berlin in 1891, the painter had written to his art school friend Alfred Vance Churchill of his unbounded faith in the goodness of the Almighty and in the capacity of art to express this good. Thus, when the momentum behind the Arbeitsrat's call to arms, where atheist communists worked hand-in-hand hand with Christian leftists, was carried over into the founding ideals of the Bauhaus, it was a natural step for someone like Feininger to fold his religious beliefs into a program of art education aimed at evangelizing this ultimately spiritual force of good to the broader masses. If you happen to be someone whose life is not very much adversely affected by religious ideas, one of the most amusing and interesting aspects of religion is the role that translations of sacred texts play. When words are given a tremendous weight of meaning, translation becomes even more arcane than usual, and variations in the emphasis of a translation can reveal something about the beliefs of those presenting them to us. The final clause of the Bauhaus Manifesto that we have called out for this episode reads in the original. Wollen, erdenken, erschaffen wir gemeinsam den neuen Bau der Zukunft, der alles in einer Gestalt sein wird. Architektur und Plastik und Malerei, der aus Millionen Händen der Handwerker einst gen Himmel steigen wird, als kristallenes Sinnbild eines neuen kommenden Glaubens. The canonical English translation by the Bauhaus Archive is Let us strive for, conceive, and create the new building of the future that will unite every discipline, architecture, and sculpture, and painting, and which will one day rise heavenwards from the million hands of craftsmen as a clear symbol of a new belief to come. Notice something different. Something missing? If you skip back to paragraph one, Go ahead. The skip button in this podcast works to move discreetly between paragraphs, so you can come back to this same spot easily. 
you'll hear at the beginning that our earlier quotation from the Manifesto's Coda used a different translation than that by the Bauhaus archive. We chose a version that hews far more closely to dictionary definitions because the Bauhaus archive text displays a revealingly editorial decision concerning one of the most contentious words a manifesto can contain. Faith. The final word that this text ends on for emphasis, the word that, if it were read out as a speech, would be left singing in the air, living for a moment before the expectant applause arrived, was, indeed, Glaubens, faith. It can be loosely construed as belief, but dictionaries and common usage place it as faith. For belief, Glaube, without the NS ending, or the fairly synonymous Überzeugung, are more typically used. By the way, we do appreciate the recent uptick in listenership from the Bundesrepublik, so if there are any Germans or fellow German speakers who wish to comment on this matter with some non-papal authority, please write us at info at lapsuslima.com or tweet us your thoughts at lapsuslima. Reflecting on this deliberate shift in translation, it makes sense on a certain level and speaks volumes about what one might call the architectural dogma of the second half of the 20th century. The heroic anti-sentimentalism, the incredulous iconoclasm, and matter-of-course irony that Dada bequeathed to us almost a century ago has become if not a religion, then certainly a deeply entrenched habitus. It is a system distinct enough from where the Bauhaus began that the inheritors of its legacy have buttoned up this sleeve that once wore a faith-filled heart. The avant-gardes that were culturally of the 20th century being those that followed Dada after the Great War, made a grand gesture of sweeping away these abstract or spiritual concerns and earned a healthy skepticism towards systems of belief that could lead to faith in nationalistic superiority, better living through chemistry, holy wars, or atoms for peace. Yet, the skeptical aversion to faith in the abstract has, over time, donned the all-too-present mantle of what we would like to call eroicophilia, an overweening love of the actions and qualities of heroism. This desire to be revolutionary has persisted for decades, even where the need for revolution has not. Heroic ophelia in art and politics has turned once warranted struggles against dogmatic oppression into pageants of self-congratulation. Dozens of fresh and not-so-fresh examples 
come to mind, but we will only mention one of recent stock. When interviewed by Charlie Rose about the new Whitney Museum, Renzo Piano still harped about the Pompidou Center being a battle cry against the elites. So somehow putting pipes on the outside really gave the middle finger to that enemy of the people, the Louvre? It is hard to not feel that much of late 20th century architecture has given us a surplus of anti-fill-in-the-blank, while pressuring us to be shy about conveying any beliefs that are not filtered through a heavy dose of irony. We feel that airbrushing the word faith out of the Bauhaus Manifesto is a symptom of this. Postmodern buildings that advanced jokey, ironic architecture, like Venturi's Guildhouse Retirement Home with its prominent symbolic TV antenna, are another. But we are already an appreciable distance away from the calendar years of the late 20th century, while our culture still slowly but inevitably adjusts and transforms to whatever the newer prevailing systems of belief may be. Architects like Eisenman have blithely spoken of the virtues of antagonizing one's forebearers so that a breathless pursuit of novelty might be assured. This throwback to a nigh-Olympian faith is in marked contrast to the expressionist spiritualism of the Bauhaus Manifesto. While modernist belief wished to leave the past by turning a half-circle and looking to the future, the postmodern stance dealt with the past by turning it inside out or altering it into a finger puppet. To be fair, though, irony and confrontation with the past are much easier to accomplish than striving to enact a foreseen future on a path of sincere faith. Again, analogously to religions, schisms and doctrinal disputes can arise within the arts. By 1924, Julia Feininger had gone far past calling the school a volcano. In a letter to her husband, she compared the Bauhaus to a den of winding, poisonous snakes. The pressure of history had started to erode the school's ideals. Hyperinflation forced a meeting of the faculty where Grofius insisted that, due to budgetary concerns, industrial application needed to become the Bauhaus's new focus, and rapidly. In October 5, 1922, Feininger wrote to Julia that Grofius had stated, Whoever cannot show now what he is capable of may go to hell with his art. Beliefs began to harden and chafe. And it is worth recalling that the Bauhaus's initial industrial direction was not ideological as much as it was forced. Johannes Itten 
had been the first to cast his own beliefs into a dogmatic mold. His unique religion, vegetarianism, futuristic unitards, and, to a great extent, his sense of color, were the earliest heresies to be denounced at Weimar and expelled from it. Join us for more on Itten and the institution and institutionalization of expressionism next on Lapsus Lima. Thank you for listening.